You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, it's been about six months since Governor David Ige appointed State Adjutant General Kenneth Hara as incident commander of our COVID-19 response. We spoke with him this week as efforts are being made to reset our response to the health and economic crisis. With an October 15th travel reopening set, Hara believes we will be ready for business. We started this planning, you know, months ago. So we've kind of looked at it in, in certain what I call lines of operation. The first one being looking at the public health infrastructure and then how do we mitigate risk. As an example, you know, all of our efforts in trying to improve the disease investigation and contact tracing operations for this anticipated travel surge. Also, you saw our ability to um, get long-term surge hospital staffing for the state. You know, we, we learned a lot from, from when this COVID disaster first started. And one of the things we learned uh, not only here in Hawaii, but also from the other states, is they're looking at building alternate care facilities, additional bed space. But that really wasn't the issue. The issue was the staffing. And once we realized what, what that shortfall was, we were able to rapidly get support from the federal government and then a long-term so- solution through DOH and uh, getting a contract executed. We also improved and trying to improve our testing capacity, you know, which um, in the long term will also look at surveillance. And we're hoping as part of the Safe Travels Hawaii at some point doing post-arrival testing as well. Unfortunately, the logistics are not in place for us to, to execute that. But do you think it will become part of the plan? I, I really do. You know, there's so many businesses out there now that are getting cheaper tests. Uh, some of them are the, the antigen tests that are really, really fast, cost-effective, and the specificity rate is high above the 90 percentile for accuracy. We did recently do an interview with Oceanit as an example of a local company that was trying to develop Correct. a spit test. So that, that would be like one of the things we'll be looking at is, is exploring other antigen tests. So when I talked about the line of effort, right, it was a mitigation, public health infrastructure. Testing was another category. We're also looking at um, increasing the ability for the labs to do more mass testing with, with the, the high-density type of test machines. So having the state purchase these type of testing machines and, and do a memorandum of understanding with, with the labs, the big labs, so that they can increase the, the state's testing as well. Another line of effort is the airport arrival process and being able to screen. You know, we launched the uh, Safe Travels Hawaii Google platform so that all of the forms can be filled out online. The city provided some money for the University of Hawaii, the med school, to try and expand the capacity there. And I think, I think just shortages in, you know, whether it's getting equipment to be able to reach that level, I think is part of the challenge because everybody's trying to build yeah. capacity. The challenge has been we face challenges with the testing at different stages. So as an example, if, if I can kind of walk you through the life cycle, so you need the test kits to actually do the testing. So that's the swab and the transport medium. Then those that are doing the testing, you need the PPE, right, the personal protective equipment, the mask, the gloves, the gowns, the face shield, so they can safely take the sample. And then you get, you get it to the lab, and then the lab needs to be able to, to test and they need something called a reagent. So anywhere along that logistics, the chain of supply, if there's a, a shortfall, that impacts our ability to test. So are you pretty confident that we're good in those areas now? Yeah, so I'm confident we're good. And, you know, when we first started this, we had the capacity of about 3,000 tests per day. We're up above 6,000 now. And as I mentioned, we're going to be buying these larger test machines for the laboratories, increase it even more. All the uh, thermal scanners are in at the airports and that there are plans to do the, the facial recognition system, I think, what, later this year? By, by the end of the year. So it's two types of cameras. One is at the thermal screening and the other one to do the facial recognition. So what happens is if someone exceeds that 100.4 degrees, they're identified, and then those on the on the monitor would notify appropriate personnel. Then that's when the healthcare would do a secondary temperature check just to confirm that it is in fact above 100.4. So we'll have the, the individual sit down in an isolated area, you know, ensure that maybe they was rushing or running or something that that could have been the reason for the spike in temperature. Allow them to to settle down, cool down. We take secondary temperature screening, and then if they still exceed the 100.4 
then medical personnel, primarily EMR, would go in and do a health survey. You've had your members of the Guard uh, dispatched to a number of areas, and uh, I know there was some concern about having the Guard, you know, process the unemployment claims. You've got them as contact tracers. They were helping at the airport, you know, with the screening. In Kauai, they were checking up on uh, the folks that were in quarantine. And they're still doing that. Do you see, I guess, an expansion of their duties when it comes to enforcement? Uh, not not for enforcement, because based on how the mission assignment is, because they're currently on federal funding, so I cannot use them for law enforcement. They can assist with security for certain locations, but not law enforcement in general. We are prepared for any expansion. I currently have about 700 soldiers and airmen on what we call Title 32-502 active duty, and we can expand up to 1,300 if required. Do we have that many? In the yes. system? I have over 5,500 soldiers and airmen gotcha. in the National Guard. Okay. All right. So so we have the capacity yeah. there if we so need during, to ramp So during up. the earlier spike, we had over 1,100 on status. The other thing I needed to ask about is just the situation at the veterans' home. And, you know, it's so disheartening when we hear that we've lost another vet there in Hilo. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure it must just get you right in the gut every time you hear it. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, I'm from Hilo, so, you know, even more so affects me. What do you want to tell the community out there just about the situation, you know, that we're dealing with? I think now you can be rest assured that the proper expertise is there. Um, Avalon did have challenges. You know, initially when we reached out to them, they felt confident and they made us feel confident that the guidelines that they were using would, would be able to isolate and, and reduce the risk of spread. But, you know, obviously... That didn't happen. So as in conversation with the Veterans Administration, um, Department of Health, and my guys and gals from Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, that's when we mobilized. We sent uh, a team from DOH, requested VA to come in and help us to do an assessment initially. And one one of our subject matter experts, uh, Dr. Yazawa, went there also as part of the assessment team. And, you know, they rapidly deployed. We, We got some really good experts come in from the Veterans Administration. The next step now is, uh, I I think recently you folks saw that um, there has been a decision to get the entity to do the management of the Yukio Ukutsu Veterans Long-Term Care Center. So HHSC and Dr. Rosen will be in lead to determine how to best solve that in the next coming months. You know, we saw Senator Schott step in. He criticized the slowness of the state and the county to step in and do something. How do you respond to that? So I respond like we were already in close contact with the Veterans Administration. I guess maybe we could have done a better job at keeping the center informed on what the state was doing. And to be clear, this is a state veteran center. I don't think they should be placed on the county. You know, yeah, that facility was in, in Hilo and part of Hawaii County, but the responsibility was primarily with Avalon, the company, and then HHSC, is, as I mentioned, that actually contracted that company to run the long-term care home. So you were already in conversations with the VA prior to Senator Yes, Schatz. absolutely, yes. Switching subjects, you know, we are in a, a reset now. You know, we have a new leader, Dr. Libby Char, at the health department. Bruce Anderson to step back. You know, Dr. Sarah Park is on leave. What can you say about that situation and concerns that maybe we should have taken steps earlier? First off, the new team that came in has done an exceptional job. And I think in more ways than not that we're moving forward at a quicker pace. I, I did mention previously, you know, we, we had some disagreement with Department of Health and some of the, the policies that we thought were important. But now we really, myself, Dr. Char, Governor Ige, and then, you know, now Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is, is part of of the um, senior policy decision-making. So with this new team and the new leadership, I feel really, really confident that the state is definitely moving the right direction. You know, we're able to increase that disease investigation that I mentioned earlier to the point where we have caught up on all of the cases and that we're even increasing capacity in anticipation if there is another surge as a result of any of the policy decisions that we do, it may create another spike. Did you feel, though, as incident commander that you had to kind of defer to some of the decisions that were being made by the Department of Health, that even though you thought we should be doing something else? Yes, I would make recommendations. I never, you know, 
took any action to say, hey, you will do this, then maybe maybe I should have earlier. I had some really detailed discussions with both Dr. Anderson and Dr. Parr. But, um, you know, I always defer to their expertise. You know, I'm a I'm an operations size person, you know, military, and I was, I was relying on their medical expertise. What can you tell us about something called the red team? You know, the only time I heard the term red team, that was for building mobile swab teams that if there was a potential outbreak or a identified cluster that we could send a team in there to rapidly isolate, do the testing, identify who the close contacts were, and test them as well. I never heard it in, in the term of increasing capacity for contact tracing. But I do know that um, several entities had offered to, to the Department of Health to, to provide um, personnel to assist with the contact tracing. But what, what's important also to note is that it's not just contact tracing. I keep referring back to disease investigation operations. So when, when Dr. Emily Robertson came in and she took over the disease investigation, she created a, a new category called first contact callers. And the whole point to that is to have someone be able to call that index case within 24 hours, if at all possible, and to start the interview so we can identify their close contacts so that we can start contacting the close contacts within 48 hours. And this group of what she's calling the first contact callers would not need all of the vetting and all the special access into what's called the MAVEN system where they have all of the uh, HIPAA-sensitive items. So now we're able to, to get these calls fill in a form that can be scanned and inputted into the system so you don't have to type it in twice. So we, we can get after that, that first call to the index and to the close contact. So now we can get after the, the first calls a lot sooner. Then then you have the you know the contact tracers and then once you have the case then you have a case monitor and then a contact monitor, right? You need to keep in contact with, with the individuals that were tested and more importantly that tested positive. And then at the highest end then it's a disease investigator and an epidemiological specialist that does all of that, that mapping and, and the research to determine where the individuals got infected, see if there are any patterns. Well, I think probably just so, to the layperson, you know, when you talk about the contact tracing program, it's more of a general thing. Yeah. But it sounds like that, uh, yeah, you folks have broken it down and, and it, it's more efficient. And what, what was interesting is, you know, back in the day, there's maybe, what, 17 people that were doing it, and they're doing each one of those categories. So that's mm -hmm. what he bogged them down. And now because Dr. Robertson was able to separate all of those tasks, that they're a lot more efficient and effective at doing the disease investigation. Well, anything mm -hmm. else that you want to underscore? For me personally, we need to do myself do a better job at communicating with the public and letting everyone know what we're working at, and what, what is the most up-to-date information. You know, oftentimes, if, if you don't provide that accurate information that, you know, sometimes false information feeds that, that delta or that gap. That was Adjutant General Ken Hara candidly talking to us about what he might have done differently over the past six months and looking ahead to this next phase of our recovery. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community back October 1st, offering inspiration through art with a commitment to safe in-person visits. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll talk about a novel idea to get displaced workers placed in local companies as interns. We'll talk to the program architects to find out how this program can upskill and potentially employ many individuals and help fuel the innovation sector. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Book and Music Festival, launching the 2020 Virtual Festival with UH President David Lassner, 2 p.m. Thursday, October 1st. Schedule at hawaiibookandmusicfestival.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. Unihua, Ulehua, Unihau, Ukawa, Uahu, Umuloka, Ulana, Umau, Ukahuolabe, Uhawai. Today we're exploring our literary backyard to shine the spotlight on a prolific talent who was born in 1947 on Maui and raised in Honolulu. He attended Punahou School and later the University of Oregon, breaking new ground as a poet and artist who wove his native Hawaiian heritage into his work. He's also remembered for translating Taoist classical literature and Japanese haiku. Sadly, a tragic car crash cut his life short at the age of 36. Sixteen years after his death, his companion and literary executor, Mei Li Sai, along with another longtime friend, Richard Hamasaki, began organizing and documenting his published and unpublished works that had been stored for years in a shed. It would be almost another decade before an anthology of over 200 of his poems would be released. For today's quiz, can you name this Hawaiian poet? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. Can our shaky economy make it through 2020? Well, that depends on whether we can control the spread of COVID-19 cases, among other things, according to Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics. We've been checking in with him throughout this crisis. Here's where Brubaker thinks we're headed and what's at play. Here in Hawaii, not so much on the neighbor islands, but particularly on Oahu, the late summer, it was midsummer. By late July, you had to know it was not good on Oahu, and a lockdown probably should have occurred at that Point. But I, there was a little head shake where the numbers started to back off. And so I don't know this, but I, it's possible that decision makers thought twice or hesitated at uh, reimposing lockdown. And then when they didn't, the numbers exponentiated, the daily case counts exponentiated in August. So that was a big setback because we went, you know, 200, 225 cases per million persons per day and um, made what we went through in March and April when we had an, a, an actual statewide lockdown look like nothing. I mean, March and April were nothing compared to what happened on Oahu in August. And so to put this in perspective, Oahu in late August was worse than anywhere in Europe at the time. Worse than France, worse than Italy. And thankfully, the lockdown, once it was imposed, I think it's August 27th, on unlocking and on September 24th, seems to have brought the case counts back to or just below 100 cases per million persons per day, which is the beginning of the city's tiered, data-driven categories for reopening various aspects of economic activity in a phased way based on the data as they evolve, case count, positivity, and uh, COVID testing. And then, of course, you know, people are watching other indicators like the transmission rate or the reproduction rate, which has remained below one. So each person who is infected is infecting less than one person at the, at the moment. Point 0.9. You know, some people, obviously, healthcare and medical professionals are watching the uh, ICU bed utilization rates, which are up around 60%, and for which the de facto cap is 80%. That is, we, we can't actually get to 100% in Hawaii because we don't have enough nurses and, 
and hospital personnel. So we run out of a room at 80%, and we went from 40 to 60% utilization in about a month. So that's, you know, that's kind of for the for the industry in terms of sort of managing the worst-case scenarios for people who acquire the COVID-19 through exposure to the novel coronavirus. That's sort of the danger zone, and you got to stay away from there. We're yeah. two weeks away from more tourists. The question is, actually, there are two sides of the issue. One is, are you a safe enough destination for people actually to willingly travel to, which a case can be made for the neighbor islands in general, or certainly some of them, places like Kauai that haven't had much exposure or whatnot, even Maui. Big Island's had some trouble in various hotspots. Oahu, I think, has more to demonstrate in terms of the credibility of its mitigation response. That's one side of the equation. And the other side is, are the people who are arriving posing a risk? And there, we know there is a problem because local people have been coming back from the mainland bringing the disease with them all summer long. Like they had to go to Vegas or whatever. So all of the transmission we've had in Hawaii, none of it's related to tourism, of course. All of it's from either originating in a small number of travelers, local travelers who have come back to Hawaii, but then to the, lar- the, the larger extent in the, in the second wave this summer from community spread, plain old community spread, people just not paying attention to the, to the protocols. And so you want protocols for the arriving passenger that preempt introduction, reintroduction, and that allow or mitigation in the event somebody does arrive and then presents either symptomatically or otherwise, because you can be asymptomatic, evidence of, you know, reinfection risk. It took a while for the state to come up with those management protocols, and it sounds like now they're, you know, they've got it a little more organized. So we'll see. It'll be a big experiment. It hasn't worked well elsewhere. So that's, you know, that's a risk. The solution to the economic problem is the solution to the epidemiological problem. Solve the epidemiological problem and you saw the economic problem. So the, the question will be, can the protocols that have been adopted enable restoration of Hawaii's principal export without reintroduction of risk exposure of a magnitude that can't be managed? And as I say, it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, personally, I would have preferred much more rigorous protocols. Like, for example, I don't understand we're not, why we're not tracking people's smartphones. Ask me if I care about their privacy because Google's already tracking them. Facebook is tracking them. Nobody seems to care about that. Why should the attorney general? But that seems to be the number one issue among politicians' minds or lawyers at any rate. And so we're not going to do that, which is, has obviously worked in East Asia. But we're going to do more testing and uh, maybe even testing upon arrival, which makes way more sense than testing prior to departure. And then some version of contact tracing, not using technology, which is sort of like how the dumb people do it. And then some version of, you know, isolation, sort of managed environments, like if not full resort bubbles, but, you know, something in, in, in that framework that seeks to diminish mobility and therefore transmission uh, in the event uh, somebody arrives that has been infected. I mean, me, I would put, I'd put everything to work. And in particular, I'd put smartphone and geotracking technology to work. We did talk with uh, General Hara, and uh, he did indicate that, yeah, that second test is something that they are working on. Uh, you know, they'll roll out what they have and they'll tweak it along the way. We're going to learn as we go uh, things like rapid testing and, you know, the spit-in-a-cup test or whatever, these, these alternative but less accurate but shorter turnaround testing formats will become available at lower cost and make it easier to engage more actively, more aggressively in, in the first step, which is screening through testing. So that's, a, that's, that's definitely a good sign, and I'm glad to hear they're embracing it. We're at a point where we have not gotten another shot in the arm with, the, with federal funds. Yeah. We've got this election coming up, so lots of things that could affect our economy in a big way. You know, there's, we're starting to see the layoffs, the airlines, Disney. Yeah, you know, there have been a lot of people with global hotel brands who have been on furlough. They've been, you know... They've been told that their jobs would be waiting for them after six months or whatever. And now that we've reached the six-month mark, a lot of these companies are having to make hard decisions in the absence of any further indication of support for either for preserving employment or helping with commercial rent or whatever the problem is. The point of the CARES Act and the related, you know, there are a series of interventions in the spring, federal, 
fiscal policy interventions was understanding that the, the driver, that the underlying risk factor is completely exogenous. It's, you know, it's not, nobody made a mistake making bad residential loans, mortgage loans, or whatever, putting the financial system at risk. In this case, it just it literally came out of the blue or some, from bats or somewhere. The, the fact that it's exogenous risk, but nonetheless systemic in the sense that the entire population and therefore the entire economy is exposed is at risk, then a collective response, you know, from we the people, from the government, is warranted. And uh, going into debt to do it makes just as much sense under the current circumstances as has been the case in the past when either because of uh, economic depression from other origins, as in the 1930s, or, or because of um, World War uh, in the 1940s, you know, we, we mobilized as a society. There is an understanding that depending on how things worked out, right, contingent on how things looked after six months, a similar response might need to be mobilized. And if you ask the economists at any time over the last several months now, certainly in July and August, for which I have survey data, uh, economists were almost uniformly, I mean, large, large, large proportions, three quarters, 75 to 80 percent of economists not only said that uh, an additional uh, federal fiscal uh, stimulus was necessary, but that the range for such an intervention was broadly from one to three trillion and, you know, centered closer to two trillion than the one trillion. So I don't know what these clowns have been waiting for because. If you were to ask, have asked an economist back in July and August, they would have told you that. And and our professional association did survey us, and that's what we all, you know, told the survey takers. We had a recovery emerging in the late spring, early summer, and then, you know, we, for whatever reason, you know, because people are idiots, um, we had second waves, and now we're have we had second wave across the Sun Belt, and then. People on Oahu, people in Honolulu were like, ha-ha, look at those guys. Look at those clowns in Arizona and Florida and Southern California. And then guess what? We had our second wave over here on Oahu. And then now a bunch of other clowns are having their second wave. Right? They just had to ride their Harley Davidson to Sturgis, South Dakota. And so now you know, north of the Dakotas right now are the most toxic places in America. And uh, I think North Dakota, North Dakota today is worse than New York in March and worse than as bad as April and I'm sorry Arizona and Florida in in July, so we we have these rolling regional waves and the problem for us in terms of the question you know in terms you know what what's the nature of the recovery, well in, in the first place it aborted in the third quarter at least partially, and the risk now as we go into the fourth quarter is that right at the moment when we have an impetus for additional economic recovery from the reopening of tourism just presuming that we actually manage it. The challenge is that we could have an additional wave of coronavirus introduction and, you know, COVID-19 uh, morbidity that um, further sets back the recovery trajectory. That was part of a conversation with Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics that we had yesterday afternoon. He was giving us his take on our shaky economy as we head into the fourth quarter of 2020. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. Share a little aloha this September. With Foodland's annual matching gift program, your donation is matched by Foodland and the Western Union Foundation. When you're at the register of a Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farm store anytime this September, remember Hawaii Public Radio and give aloha. Honolulu police crime-solving record is the worst it's been in nearly 40 years. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. 
So that headline, it's like a wet rag in the face first thing in the morning. It's not looking good. So HPD's rate of solving crimes is at a record low, as you said, as far back as we have data from the Attorney General's office, which is from the early 80s. Um, and last year, the past two years, um, are are not positive numbers. Um, they show that 93% of crimes reported in 2019 went unsolved. Um, basically, they did not result in an arrest or were closed some other way. Um, and when you break it out between violent crimes and property crimes, um, it shows that HPD failed to make an arrest or otherwise close cases in three out of four violent crime uh, reports. And for property crimes, 95% were left unsolved. Um, and this is all talking about a clearance rate, which is what police departments use to track when they arrest or otherwise close cases. It's a key measure of a police department's uh, f effectiveness. Now, you reached out to a criminologist at the University of Hawaii, and his quote is, what, a low clearance rate is like a badge of shame. That is what he said, yeah. It's um, certainly not the only measure that a police department tracks to, to see how they're doing, but it is an important one. Um, you know, solving crimes is supposed to be part of the, the core mission to a police department. Um, and on that measure, HPD has been doing worse and worse over the past couple years. And you also talked to uh, Major Ch uh, Chesney Lynn as well about our clearance rate. Yes, and she's actually been a, a victim of burglary herself. Um, she's a criminologist and has personal experience, and she said that that property crime clearance rate of only about 5% is unbelievably low. Um, but she said this doesn't really come as a surprise to anyone who's been burglarized on Oahu. Um, she said the police come out, write a report, and say, get a dog, uh, and that's pretty <laughs> disheartening. Yeah, so um, a as far as then this clearance rate, I mean... Uh, did you get a take from the police chief about, you know, what this means? I did reach out to Chief Susan Ballard. Um, the department declined to be interviewed. Um, the department said that they would address these concerns when the next attorney general's report on the crime in Hawaii uh, comes out, although the AG's office hasn't published that report since January 2019, and that was for data for 2017. So I don't know when that report is coming out. Um, the bottom line is the, the department offered no explanation for these numbers. Um, but I did ask the criminologist I interviewed for, you know, what could be some reasons behind this? Um, and one factor could be the mix of crime on the island. Um, we do have a lot more property crime than some other areas, so um, those are often hard to solve. If there's no witnesses, um, you know, you can't make an arrest in a lot of cases. Tourism, of course, is another factor. If tourists are victimized, they may just want to go home and not cooperate with police. Um, and then also, the HPD has long complained about its low staffing. Although I do want to note that in the 90s, overall crime was much higher than it is now. HPD oftentimes had fewer officers than they do now, but officers back then solved more cases. So is it our, office, is it our officers don't have the right kind of training or, or what? It's a kind that of a head scratcher. <laughs> it is, yeah. That would have been among my questions to the chief, and hopefully she will address that um, sometime soon. But um, right now... It's just kind of the reaction from experts and um, city councilman Tommy Waters is just kind of shock and dismay. Um, this is not what you want to see. Well, um, I, I don't really understand why we have to wait for the um, AG's report to come out. Do you? I'm I'm not clear on that either. Um, the, the numbers um, that the AG would be publishing come straight from the police department, and those are already published by the FBI and came out Monday, and those are the ones I was working with. So um, the, the facts are out there. The explanation is, uh, well, we're just waiting for it. And I guess we don't hear too much about this crime-solving rate. Um. No, we don't. Um, the last news story I could 
find. Um, it was from 2003, um, so it was definitely worth revisiting. And HPD actually stopped putting it in its annual report. So you can see crimes reported and arrests that they've made, but they stopped including the clearance rate um, in their annual reports, which is really strange. And one criminal criminologist told me that's like a baseball player not sharing their batting average. You know, they really need to keep a close eye on the clearance rate. Yeah, what they're not telling us. Okay, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her interesting story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Earlier in the show, we told you about a Lahaina-born poet raised in Honolulu uh, who graduated from Punahou, class of 1966. He attended the University of Oregon but dropped out in 1969. He managed to evade being drafted into the Vietnam War and resumed his studies at UH Manoa, where he eventually obtained his B.A. in Chinese studies. During the 70s, he was involved with the Kaho'olawe anti-bombing protests led by George Helm, and he published poems and editorials defending the protesters. On February 16, 1984, two weeks after his car was struck by a drunken driver, he died at Hilo Hospital. For the next decade and a half, his large body of work languished in an outdoor shed until two of his biggest fans started a project to gather and document everything he worked on. The resulting anthology of over 200 poems was released in 2009 by the University of Hawaii Press. It was titled Westlake Poems by Wayne uh, Kamuali'i Westlake. Uh, and congratulations to Mary Finley. You got it right. She shares with us that they were, uh, uh, they sat together actually on a committee, the Puno Geothermal Committee back in the 80s. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for us, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. The U.S. has been the driving force for sending election monitors to other countries to ensure clean elections. And it is rather inconceivable that we're finding ourselves in a situation now where we legitimately appear to be having a need for them ourselves. Election monitors from across Europe are watching the U.S. election this year as American democracy is put to the test. Our story on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. This month, the World Economic Forum rolled out new reporting metrics, a benchmark for companies to grade themselves against. These metrics centered around people, our planet, prosperity, and the principles of governance. Corporations refer to them as the values of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Here in Hawaii, we look to Hawaiian Electric Industries President and CEO Connie Lau about what will drive decisions for its utility and banking operations. We learn more about ESG values, the non-financial factors that are emerging on Wall Street. There's a whole new movement going on in the financial markets called ESG, or it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And what it's all about is that the financial markets are now realizing that if you want to create shareholder value, you need to have long-term sustainable companies that are doing the right thing for their communities and for society. And so now there's this focus on environmental, social, and governance factors. So in addition to what, you know, everybody thinks of with uh, corporations and that's shareholder profit, there's now these non-financial metrics as well. So it's things like, you know, in the environment, people have realized that our climate is at risk and that we all need to get together to do what we can to uh, save the planet for the next generation. And so if you don't do that, 
it can create a huge risk, not only for um, the public, but also for the company and also for shareholders. You know, think an oil company, right? An oil company, if they make their money off of oil, which is bad for the environment, then, you know, investors may stop buying those companies. And you see lots of non-fossil fuel policies, even our own state has said we got to get off fossil fuels. So if our company was not doing that, that would create a huge risk for our company, just as it does for society. So that's what this whole new trend is all about, is looking at these non-financial factors, environmental and social and governance, and making sure that companies align their strategies so that those strategies do positive things for the environment, positive things for society, positive things for governance, so that we all win, including the shareholders. You often hear about groups that are, you know, calling out entities to divest of this stock or that stock if there are social implications about how that company is structured and the decisions they make about their business dealings. So is this kind of along those lines? It's a blueprint? The very interesting thing for me is that growing up here in Hawaii, growing up in islands, I think all of us that do that have a real sense of community. You know, we always think about the community even as we're running our businesses. And for the longest time, the HEI companies in particular have had a mission statement to be a catalyst for a better Hawaii And we said to our board, to our shareholders, look, guys, you know, we only do business here in Hawaii. And so if we don't do the right things for Hawaii, our shareholders aren't going to do well. Our futures are very intertwined, in fact, inextricably intertwined with the future of the state here. And so one of the things we said is that this new trend of ESG actually has been in our DNA forever. And what I love about it is now the financial markets are starting to realize the value of this longer-term societal view of how companies should be operating. So we hope that that will be a good thing for our company and our shareholders as well. So let's talk about a couple of things. You know, we hear about resilience and climate change and planning for the risk involved in that. And so for Hawaiian Electric Industries, people think of your power plants, you know, Kahi Power Plant, you know, one that used to be downtown, and like the plan forward for retreating from the shoreline because of the risk. Yes, absolutely. And that's the reason why our latest plant that we built was the Goldfield Generating Station up in the middle of Goldfield. And that had many positive aspects because it is our only generating unit that is away from the coastline. It also is the unit that can power the backup airfield to Honolulu Airport. So if Honolulu Airport was inundated and we needed to use the airfield up in Wahiawa, then that power plant can be isolated to that area to support that airport and also support the operations, some of which are hugely critical to not only Hawaii, but also our whole nation's security. As you know, that's the home of the NSA up in the Kunia Tunnel. So many, many very important facilities in that part of the island. So it creates a huge amount of resilience for everybody. And I guess the big concern is, you know, just the disruption whether it's from a natural disaster or with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So how are you looking at just the COVID recovery? COVID has been just unprecedented for everyone. But what we said at the HEI companies right from the start is that if you think about our businesses, both of them are essential businesses. I think everybody gets it on the electricity side. You know, if the electricity doesn't keep flowing, you know, the economy just doesn't run here. People can't operate. Hospitals don't stay open. Ventilators can't operate. And particularly with everybody that can working remotely, 
you know, you got to have electricity in your homes as well to be able to work remotely or for the kids to do distance learning. And so we knew that we needed to keep operating during this time period. And if you think about our other major operating company, which is American Savings Bank, that's the same thing. You know, people still have to conduct transactions in the financial market. They still have mortgages to pay and bills to pay and, you know, accounts for the stimulus payments to be put into those accounts or for small businesses getting the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP funds. So both the businesses are essential businesses. And so we said right from the start, number one, we got to make sure that we continue to operate and that we put in place processes that can keep our employees safe, number one, and then also keep our customers safe as we continue to keep the lights on and the financial transactions going. The other thing that we said was, you know, we're the kinds of companies that actually are expected in times like these to actually help the whole economy and the whole population actually weather this pandemic. Clearly, you see on the utility side, we've done things like suspend the disconnections. And then to help customers pay their bills, we've developed all kinds of payment programs. And we're really trying to connect them up with some of the funds that have been made available by government for things like rental payments, but also utility payments. And then on our banking side, the bank really was one of the first to organize and start processing the Paycheck Protection Program applications, the PPP, for small business, not only our own customers, but also non-customers, to try to get that money into our community. So we actually, in just a very short period of time, helped small businesses in Hawaii receive $370 million of PPP money to help sustain them and to pay workers throughout this pandemic. I'm really, really proud of our HEI companies for you know being able to do those kinds of things. And what about the push for renewables? You know, one of the interesting things that has occurred during this whole pandemic is we thought that maybe plans like this move to green energy would slow down because of the pandemic. But it's been quite the opposite, Catherine. It's so interesting. I think as people have thought about, okay, how do we come out of this pandemic? How do we recover? Is this the opportunity to really create kind of a Hawaii 2.0? People have really focused on the fact that that Hawaii 2.0 should very definitely be a green economy. And so a lot of the plans for renewables and retiring the coal plant, the contract is up on that, and, you know, we aren't going to be renewing that. It's so important to actually continue all of these processes and, in fact, maybe even help accelerate things like individual homeowners who want rooftop solar. And that's, that's actually something of great interest now with everybody working from home. You know, if they can have their own TV panels, they can be generating more of the electricity that they are now using at home. So it's been great. And the Public Utilities Commission has continued the momentum to, you know, review the green energy programs. And we just filed for approval of several new purchase power agreements for renewable energy with the commission. And they have not slowed down. They've really adapted to this new virtual environment. So a lot of the broader public meetings and stakeholder engagement meetings have continued, albeit they are continuing virtually. And I have to ask, because I know when we were covering the Next Era deal, I think HEI was, you know, saying, well, we could certainly use an infusion of cash to kind of upgrade our infrastructure. Fortunately, Hawaiian Electric's pockets are deep enough to help us through this whole transition. And so what we were looking for in Next Era was also, you know, they're like a leading company in this whole energy transition with lots of new technologies and new processes and the like, but that wasn't to be, as we all know. And so thankfully, we have picked back up 
and are really pushing this whole energy transition forward. And what's really interesting in Hawaii is that it's intended to be a community-wide effort. It isn't just about the electric company. In fact, I don't think we could do it just on our own. Think distributed solar and all the rooftops I was just talking about. You know, it really takes everybody to believe in renewable energy and do the things that are necessary, including things like energy efficiency, replacing all your old refrigerators with energy star appliances, doing whatever we can to help this energy transition. And so that's what we're all about. And we're trying to facilitate as many of these transactions as possible for consumers and businesses who want to contribute and be part of the whole green revolution. So how do we get there faster? That's what we're all trying to, you know, figure out. Uh, You haven't asked, but of course, one of the big issues is some of the large, the utility scale programs, you know, not everybody wants them in their backyard. What we've encouraged a lot of the developers, the independent power producers who are building these renewable projects is to get out there early and work with our communities early. You know, talk to them, find out what concerns they might have, how can they mitigate those concerns. Um, And that's a huge change that we've made from how we used to do things. You know, previously we used to announce the bidders when the contracts were actually signed up. Now we're announcing the bidders when the award is made so that people know where these projects are intended to um, be placed. And we're asking the developers to engage with the communities early and talk about the projects that are coming in. When you live on islands, I think we all understand the scarcity issues, and particularly the scarcity of land and how precious the land is. So I've always said it doesn't matter whether you're building a shopping center, a hotel, or you know, a wind farm or a solar farm, you touch the land, it's really, really important to work with the communities. And that was part of a conversation we had with Connie Lau, CEO and President of Hawaiian Electric Industries, about a new trend of environmental, social, and governance standards and responsibilities to judge companies by. Well, that's a wrap today, but up tomorrow we plan a call-in show where we talk about the snapshot of nursing during a pandemic and during this, the year of the nurse. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on social media. Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will all be back tomorrow for more of the conversation.